When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm star of stage and screen Kathleen Turner. <laughs> and when I'm not playing Texas Molly Ivins on stage while watching rebroadcasts of Romancing the Stone and Not Jewel of the Nile, which was an abomination, I listen to Rational Security. Come for the deep takes on national security and foreign policy. Stay for the celebrity impressions. <laughs> You sound so husky, Shane. Thank I like you. it. Thank you. It adds a sort of a gravitas. To I could have done Lauren Bacall. Yeah. Yeah. You would have to. When smoke I'm not a fighting lot. with Justin Robards and making Folgers crystals, <laughs> I listen to Rational Security. <laughs> All right, I want you to do one of these every episode. Now we can make that happen. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Calm Before the Storm edition. I'm Shane Harris. I'm not Kathleen Turner, although I sort of sound like her <laughs> right now. Play one on a podcast. Yeah, that's sort of our full disclosure up front of being, like, as you might tell, I'm a little hoarse, even though I don't look like one. A little raspy right now. Things are a Your tough. color looks good. My color looks good. Yeah, I think everything outwardly looks fine. I feel like I have about four pounds of cement in my head. That's good because it's not going to be a busy week, so you can just not relax. at all. Yeah, I don't have cover, to like be prepared to sleep go out, in. And talk, or get up early, or yeah. anything like that. Nothing big going on. No, it's totally fine. I'm so glad I'm at my best. <laughs> And then I'm here with both of you, Tamara Aww. Kaufman, Lewis, and Susan Hennessy. Honestly, this whole thing might be easier on just a ton of Sudafed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already on a ton of Sudafed. I am just, on so many drugs, just you guys. Lean into it. So like many drugs. Get through uh, but that it. will only help. Antibiotics, probiotics. When kombucha, comes. Which is terrible. Yeah, who drinks that? I don't know. I don't know. People are like, oh, it's good for the counter of the effects of the antibiotic. I'm like, I'll take the side effect. <laughs> Thank you very much. Because it looks like what's in that bottle of kombucha. <laughs> anyway, on the podcast this week, Julian Assange is taken into British custody and the United States wants him to stand trial here. President Trump vetoes a resolution to end U.S. military involvement in the civil war in Yemen. And Attorney General Bill Barr says there was, quote-unquote, spying on the Trump campaign. But it um, might have been legal spying. It might have been legal. Or Maybe. Sp- spying Maybe of some other nature. Just spying, you know, garden no variety. Deal. Spying happens all the time, you guys. Hmm. Um, let's start with Julian Assange. That was huge news last week. Uh, unless you've been living inside an embassy without access to television or the internet, you know that <laughs> <laughs> Julian Assange was, uh, wasn't exactly kicked out of the Ecuadorian embassy. It was more that his asylum was revoked and the Ecuadorians opened the door to the embassy and said to the British police standing outside, please come in. Uh, and they took him out. It, and it's a very unusual thing in international diplomatic affairs to allow your host country's you know, law enforcement into your embassy. So that was like me. So that, that's actually, is that a breach of, it's not a breach of protocol. It's just highly unusual. It's highly unusual. No, it, I mean, it was done with their permissions. So. Right, right. Um, so obviously now he is in custody in British jail 
uh, for skipping out on a bail, right? Which he uh, yes, bail on a warrant for this Swedish extradition. Right, the Swedish request. extradition previously, and so now there's this extradition case pending with the United States. Um, Susan, just, let's start with some basics on this. It seems like it is reasonably speaking going to be a long time before Julian Assange sees the inside of a courtroom. He'll fight this extradition. Um, he presumably will use this as an opportunity, I would think, to air his grievances against the United States. I mean, is this just going to be a circus for the next couple of years while we try to get him back? I think it – so certainly he's going to fight extradition. Certainly it's going to take, you know, some substantial period of time. Um, you know, that said, the United States is pursuing relatively modest charges. There is an, an interesting recent precedent um, the case of a British hacker named Laurie Love who successfully fought extradition, uh, essentially arguing that um, his mental health would not be adequately preserved. It, the condition of U.S. jails um, uh, would exacerbate underlying uh, mental health issues. Um, you know, so, so it's possible that, um, that we'll see uh, Assange making similar arguments. Um, uh, that said, I think people were sort of gearing up for this to be a big giant argument about press freedom, uh, you know, sort of uh, about maybe the Trump administration, uh, you know, being overly aggressive or this would sort of take on political overtones. I, I don't think that's going to happen based on the actual charges that we've seen, which are, you know, pretty straightforward computer crimes. And is that, I mean, Tammy, it seems like that was ultimately exactly the intention all along. I mean, just speaking from a pure political perspective, I guess, more than, you know, a law enforcement one, is that going to suffice for this administration and for people in the State Department and the intelligence community who, you know, feel that Julian Assange did perhaps very bad things in releasing these cables and and the DOD documents that he ultimately disclosed. I mean, it sounds like this is a thin charge for which he might not face a lot of jail time. Is that going to seem like real justice to people who believe that he did something terrible? I'm not sure that real justice in that sense, the sort of retaliatory justice was ever viable given the complexity of what he did and also the risk for the U.S. government in charging him with doing things that some would argue journalists also do in the course of their normal work and you wouldn't want to criminalize that stuff or even send a chilling signal and just prosecuting him at all is enough to make some um, journalism rights organizations nervous and certainly folks on the left. And I think that's important to remember as well. Assange is a really divisive figure in American politics, just as Chelsea Manning is a very divisive figure in American politics. There are those on the left who still consider um, that release of information heroic because they argue it revealed American culpability in what they would call war crimes. As someone who was working in the State Department during the release of those diplomatic cables, I would say it also endangered a huge number of innocent people who were simply named in cables as embassy contacts in various countries. It was a release of information that went forward without any concern for uh, for third country nationals who, ha you know, who have no role in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and no dog in that fight. And um, and so it's heedless and reckless. And yes, very, very, very damaging. I also think, though, that there was, as I understand it, part of the agreement with the Ecuadorians was that he would not face the death penalty. And so that mm -hmm. also may have played into the decision on the U.S. side about how to charge him. 
Yes, yeah, so certainly the UK will not extradite anyone who might face the death penalty. So as a condition of extradition, the US, the United States would have already had to have agreed to remove the, that from the table. That said, um, there are no plausible charges that Assange would have ever faced where the death penalty would have been uh, sort of a live possibility. Essentially, there were sort of two plausible buckets. One is sort of the violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, so essentially hacking crimes. Those are those are the, what actually materialized. The other possibility ability where, where that it would be charges under the Espionage Act. So essentially for publication of classified material uh, in part because of precisely the types of harms that you're describing, Tammy. And, uh, and that is uh, the U.S. government has long asserted that the law would support such charges, um, that, that a journalist could be prosecuted for uh, publishing classified information. Um, that said, as a prudential matter, they've declined to sort of go down that path uh, of, of charging people under the Espionage Act because obviously there are big potential chilling consequences. You know, I do think it's relatively clear that the U.S. government at least considered that in this case. Um, there's reports that they interviewed other individuals related to WikiLeaks that the line of questioning would certainly seem to indicate that they were at least considering that. And so uh, I think there are two ways uh, to read this uh, this indictment, and, and that's clearly what's happening. Both sides are sort of taking these, these alternative reads. One is that this is just pretext and what they actually wanted to get him on was a bunch of other stuff and all they could find was this uh, offer to attempt to help somebody, uh, Chelsea Manning, hack a DOD system. And those are really thin charges and this is really a pretextual prosecution. The other way to read it is this is a really restrained uh, act on, on the part of the government that there were a lot of potential charges on the table that the government could have really leaned forward on and instead they decided to go with this much more sort of modest uh, group. I wonder, too, if there's a, a third option, which is that there, there are more charges coming. And one of the things that was interesting in some of the reporting we were doing last week is it, it seems as though you know, the Obama administration clearly had made a decision that prosecuting WikiLeaks was going to trigger too many First Amendment implications, and so they held back from that. But then the Trump people came in, and it seems that there was a turning point when WikiLeaks published the stolen CIA hacking tools uh, under the umbrella of what was called Vault 7. Uh, that certainly, we know, also infuriated Mike Pompeo and people at the CIA when he came in as director were telling him, this is hugely damaging. This is really potentially one of the worst intelligence leaks we've ever seen. And then Pompeo, when he gave his very first speech as director at CSIS back in 2017, uh, called WikiLeaks a, a hostile non-state intelligence service. So you can sort of see that turning. And why I wonder there might be more coming charges is there's currently someone in custody right now who is the person who has been charged with being the source of that information to WikiLeaks, a guy named Joshua Schulte, um, who for, for a while was held in uh, the Manhattan jail on uh, unrelated charges, but now the government is is moving forward prosecuting him as the source for WikiLeaks. That makes me wonder there too, there's no First Amendment implication in that. Josh Schulte was a CIA employee. He's alleged to have either given access to, to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks or somehow facilitated in the transfer. And it wouldn't surprise me if the government had evidence that they might want to present that maybe Julian Assange facilitated as well, showing him how to do it, 
or encouraging him to do it, trying to establish some kind of communication between them the way they did between Manning and Assange. And that would be a very clean-cut place where you could, it seems to me, indict him under the Espionage Act. I think that's right. I, I think it's entirely possible, if not plausible, that we will see Vault 7 charges. And, and it's, I think, important to sort of um, uh, note the difference between a journalist passively receiving information versus actually encouraging or assisting a source in illegally obtaining right. that information. And I should add, too, the government has presented no evidence that that happened with Vault 7, but there are just there are strong signals that might be heading that way. Right. And, and But that's the reason why there's sort of a line that people tend to not want to cross. The other big unanswered question is whether or not the United States government is prepared to or preparing to present any, any evidence related to uh, Julian Assange's relationship with the Russian government. So, uh, you know, obviously that featured, WikiLeaks featured in uh, the special counsel's investigation. Uh, some of the filings sort of hinted at the possibility that Organization One WikiLeaks may have been uh, sort of a witting agent, but that there was a lot of ambiguity there. And so I do think there's this other bucket of questions of if there is more to that relationship than, oh, we just got random files, we don't know where they came from, whether or not the government wants to prove that case in court. Yeah, I think that is a really, really interesting question. And I also think it gets to sort of how do Americans view this and is this a win for the Trump administration or is it a win for the U.S. government? Um, because when you think about the WikiLeaks cable dump, you know, that first big dump, that feels very, very long time ago. It's about activities during the Bush administration. The dump happened during the Obama administration. Assange has been sitting in this embassy for years. And so it, it feels a little bit like, you know, we're upset about something the U.S. government did a long, long time ago in a different era when we were intervening all over the world, right? That the sort of leftist critique that supported WikiLeaks, it feels kind of out of date. And so to the extent that there is evidence about the relationship between WikiLeaks and the Russian government or, you know, more evidence than we've yet seen reported about the role of WikiLeaks in the interference in the 2016 election. To me, that's the relevant political story. And you can see, therefore, that while I'm sure this wasn't what drove the decision making for the Justice Department, you can see how some in the White House might see it as useful to be prosecuting Julian Assange at the same time that, well, we might be seeing something tomorrow. Right, right. And here we are in the calm before the storm, and a lot of those questions may get answered tomorrow. I also think if I was a counterintelligence, you know, FBI agent, I would certainly be interested in sitting down with Julian Assange to the extent that the United States ever does uh, actually take him into custody um, to see if he had any tidbits of information he might want to share with the U.S. government. Now, he's uh, not indicated that he's in a particularly cooperative kind of mood. Right, he um, might just smear poo on you. <laughs> He's he's also um, the kind of person with a reputation for maybe being a little bit in uh, in it for himself. And so, uh, you know, if he thinks that he can, in fact, uh, get leniency from the U.S. government by providing information, uh, I, I'm sure there are some receptive ears in the government. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm thinking now about that article uh, that came out a couple of days ago about how Gina Haspel, with her training in recruiting agents, has figured out how to persuade the president of the United States or how to get his attention. Mm. And uh, it strikes me that, you know, th there may be some similar skills applied to U.S. government officials who want to interview Julian Assange. Right, right. Okay. Um Let's travel the world, shall we? 
This week, the president vetoed a bipartisan congressional resolution on Tuesday that would have forced an end to the American military involvement in the civil war in Yemen. Uh, Quoting from the New York Times here, rejecting an appeal by lawmakers to his own deeply rooted instincts to withdraw the United States from bloody foreign conflicts. And Tammy, obviously this resolution came up in the wake of Jamal Khashoggi's murder and was one of the rare instances in which the Republican Party stood up to both a a decision and a policy by the president, but in so doing was really challenging the core of the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia and the president's very vocal defense of Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi regime and his insistence that he didn't think that they played any role in Khashoggi's death. I guess the veto wasn't unexpected, but one thing I'm curious about is this could have been a bit of an easy win for the president too, right? I mean, if he – or I guess maybe I'm assuming too much. What would have been the real consequences had he not vetoed it and just let it happen? He would have gotten out of a foreign war. He doesn't like them. Well, so what's interesting about the the statement that President Trump issued along with his veto is that it actually argues that the United States isn't engaged in any hostilities in Yemen and therefore there's nothing to halt. You know, you want to remove us from something that we're not involved in is is the argument of the veto message. And it's a it's a little bit odd in that sense. I mean, isn't that just nonsense? Um, it is a very narrow reading of what it means to be engaged in hostilities. And that's evident from the very first sentences of this message where he says the joint resolution is unnecessary because the United States is not engaged in hostilities in or affecting Yemen. For example, he says, there are no U.S. military personnel in Yemen (laughs) participating or accompanying military forces of the Saudi-led coalition. Well, no, of course not. We are selling them weapons and spare parts. We are training them on how to use this equipment. We, up until very recently, were refueling. We were providing intelligence information to assist them in targeting. But we ourselves are not on the ground in Yemen shooting people. So therefore, we're not engaged in hostilities. It's It's like a kid with his finger two inches away from his brother saying, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Yes, exactly. Um, And I think that that fools nobody, certainly not the United States Senate. And certainly not the Saudis, um, for that matter. Now, look, there's a constitutional issue at the heart of this veto. I suspect that any president would have vetoed this resolution as an effort to curtail the executive authority to be commander in chief and direct the the use of um, force. But there are a bunch of other weird policy arguments in here as well. You know, he he argues that the resolution is dangerous. Uh, because Congress shouldn't seek to prohibit certain tactical operations like in-flight refueling, (laughs) Um, having just said that we're not doing this anymore. He, he says that uh, it would harm American foreign policy because it curtails certain forms of military support and that harms our bilateral relationships. In other words, I believe that as president, I should be allowed to sell arms to whoever I want for any purpose I want whenever I want. And that is constitutionally a ridiculous argument, but also in foreign policy terms, a ridiculous argument. And The message doesn't even, I think, do a particularly good job of defending the policy that the president, as you noted, Shane, has been so dug in on, which is supporting the Saudis and trying to push the Iranians back in Yemen. He says, you know, we're providing the support for many reasons, 
but then he can really only name a couple. Um, one is that we have to protect the safety of American troops who are in the Gulf from Houthi rocket attacks. And then the second, he says, the conflict in Yemen represents a cheap and inexpensive way for Iran to cause trouble for the United States and our ally. The conclusion to which I would think would be, so let's, you know, end this war (laughs) rather than let's provoke them and actually give them more of what they are seeking, um, which is entangling us. And then, you know, of course, there is the contrast between his insistence on continuing to pursue American support for the Saudi coalition in Yemen and his otherwise very clear, broad desire to extract the United States from military engagements abroad. This is a glaring exception, Yemen, from his broader foreign policy impulse. And he basically just throws this in Congress's lap in the veto message. And he says, you know, I agree about the need to address our engagement in foreign wars, and you should get involved in that instead of trying to stop this war. It's it's all just logically incoherent. I mean, I think Tammy is right that just about any president probably would have vetoed this. Um, you know, and obviously U.S. engagement in Yemen is is highly controversial and has been for a very long time um, and is increasingly unpopular. You know, that said, um, both the passage of this re- resolution and the veto does seem like a proxy for the, the United States Congress feeling as though the Saudis needed to pay some kind of price for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi uh, and the president thinking that the Saudis shouldn't have to pay any kind of price. And so there is that dimension on which this is playing out as well. Um, you know, and included this move is going to be seen as uh, as supportive of the Saudis, as once again siding with the Saudis over, uh, not in this case, the intelligence community that, of course, believes Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for his murder, um, you know, but also the sense of Congress, uh, you know, about sort of consequences here. Um, you know, Tammy, you mentioned this article about Gina Haspel earlier. You know, there's there was another little tidbit in that that sort of made me think of this as, as well, and that's that... Um, the president didn't understand why it was a big deal for the Russians to have used a nerve agent uh, to murder uh, some defectors who were in the United Kingdom. Um, and that Trump's response to that was sort of like, well, sure, they're defectors. Like, this is as if this was business as usual. Rats. Why wouldn't? Like, it seemed, you know, spies get murdered all the time. What's the problem, right? And, uh, you know, I, I do think there's a similar sort of, you know, well, like you murder journalists in your embassy. It just This is just how things are. And it's, it's, it's was a very, right. right, it's this very bizarre sort of approach approach in which he just he doesn't understand even after what I presume is lots and lots of briefings about what the U.S. intelligence community and Western intelligence communities uh, do actually engage in and this right he, he sort of fails to see the distinction in, in a way that that is bizarre and, and therefore really doesn't doesn't understand the aberration or the need to impose consequences well he sees it through the lens you're right of, of vendetta um, he sees Intelligence operations is not things that people do or countries do to further their own national interest, um, clandestine and shady and backhanded though they may be, but rather just sort of like, that's the life you chose. You're a spy. It's risky. You live by the sword. You die by the sword. And it's not it's, – it's all kind of almost this kind of – you know, people have compared him to like acting like a mafia boss in some ways. And it, it is – I can imagine that that's in some ways like – I mean, it sounds like we're making excuses for him, but if you do see the world, I suppose, through that lens, in his mind, there is a logic, it seems to me, in vetoing 
the resolution from Congress, particularly if he believes it stems from a dispute between a journalist and, you know, the guy he used to work for, his family, essentially, which is none of our business. You know, I I think that's a good point, this sort of retaliatory approach, uh, which, you know, in other contexts in international affairs is sometimes described as transactional. But in this context, that's what transactional means. You cross me, I cross you. But I, I think that this veto message is revealing of the president's approach to his job in two other ways that are worth raising. One is that he doesn't believe that Congress should have the right or ability to constrain him in his foreign policy in any way. That just comes through throughout this veto message in the ways that I that I mentioned. But the other thing that comes through is that he and his team don't care very much about making a good public argument for their own foreign policy. Every night on the news, we're seeing stories about cholera in Yemen, starving children in Yemen, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, and the role of the United States in that. If it weren't for that wave of public revulsion, I don't think that even Jamal Khashoggi's brutal murder would have been enough to get all of these Republican and Democratic members of Congress in both houses to vote for this resolution. And the White House seems entirely untroubled by the fact that public opinion is against them on this. They they can't make even a, a colorable argument on behalf of their involvement in the war in Yemen in this veto message as to why this is a good idea, why it's in American interest. He basically just says, well, we're doing it because Houthis are shooting some rockets. Iran is annoying us and I should be able to do whatever I want. And, you know, talk about consequences, Susan. It seems to me untenable that they're going to be able to to conduct themselves that way in domestic politics without facing some consequences. And David, what does this mean then for, for U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia? I mean, obviously, so much of our policy hinges on the personal relationship between the president and the royal family, and more specifically between Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner. But now we have a Congress that has unambiguously said that we do not want to be a part of this military campaign and a president who's saying, yes, we do, and that's what we're going to do. It's not the first time that you know a Congress and an executive have, have differed over major policy, but it puts us in a very um, awkward place, it seems to me. Or does it just not matter what Congress has to say about it? So I, I think that the White House's message to the Saudis has been, we've got your back. We will protect you from this. And the veto does that in a in a narrow sense. Um, but of course, this isn't the last time Congress is going to try and have something to say about this. And, you know, they're, they're now going to turn from this constitutionally questionable joint resolution to probably inserting language into the National Defense Authorization Act um, that will more practically and concretely constrain the executive in its participation uh, with the Saudis on this Yemen campaign. So, you know, this isn't done. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if I were uh, sitting in Riyadh, I would say, well, okay, right now I have a president who's willing to do a lot to protect me from Congress, but he's not going to be president forever. And what do I do then? 
And I, you know, I think they just don't have a good answer to that because they know that in order to address congressional concerns in a more substantive manner, they will actually have to make policy changes that they so far clearly really don't want to make. And they would have to take responsibility for their policy choices, whether it's Yemen, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the degree of domestic repression, the trials of uh, peaceful activists. They don't want to accept culpability or they don't want to have to um, constrain their behavior in response to international concerns or concerns from Washington. And so, you know, I, I know I've said this before, but I think this crisis in the U.S.-Saudi relationship is pretty deep. It's been building for a long time, and I don't think it's going to go away unless and until you see a Saudi government that is willing to actually make some substantive changes to its approach in order to satisfy concerns in Washington. Well, speaking of protecting leaders... Bill Barr, the Attorney General. <laughs> That's a good transition. Thank yeah, you. well, well we know who's burnishing Bill Barr's reputation if you've read your Time magazine this week. That's right. Time magazine's 100 Most Influential People profile of Bill Barr by one Rod Rosenstein. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I could get my research assistant to write a profile of me, that would be pretty awesome. Right? Get my husband I also write one. like all of my bosses a lot. <laughs> <laughs> when my boss was nominated, everyone was so excited, you guys. <laughs> He's the best. Oh, my. The um, kindest, smartest, wisest. And did I mention so good looking? <laughs> uh, so the Attorney General appeared before Congress last week uh, and had a very interesting exchange with Senator Gene Shaheen. I'm just going to pull the transcript here and talk about this. The, the question um, came up in, in, in exchange essentially about foreign influence in elections and making sure that uh, there was no spying on political campaigns. And Barr said, I think spying on a political campaign is a big deal. The generation I grew up in, which is the Vietnam War, people were all concerned about spying on people by the government. And there were a lot of rules put in place that there's an adequate basis for our law enforcement agencies to get involved in political surveillance. So obviously here it's in the context of longstanding allegations by Republicans that the FBI and or the intelligence community somehow infiltrated or spied on or uh, inappropriately monitored the Trump campaign or people connected to it in the context of the counterintelligence investigation that began during the campaign into whether or not there was some kind of a conspiracy between the Russia and the Trump campaign. And so Senator Shaheen is kind of listening to him say this and she says, but you're not suggesting though that spying occurred. To which he replies, I don't – well, I guess you could. He pauses, thinks about it. I think spying did occur. Yes, I think spying did occur. And then he says, but the question is whether it was predicated, act adequately predicated. And I'm not suggesting it wasn't adequately predicated. But I think I need to explore that. I think that's my obligation. Susan, he later walked this back a bit or at least his press officers did by saying that, well, you know, spying covers a whole range of activities and, you know, he was saying that he wanted to look into whether it was, you know, appropriate. That may be the case but two things come to mind for me. One is that Bill Barr knows exactly how the word spying resonates in the community of national security lawyers and practitioners and professionals. It generally means the kind of politically motivated spying that he was describing from the Vietnam War era in his remarks only seconds before that. And number two, he knows exactly how that charge is going to sound to people like Devin Nunes and Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows um, who immediately pounced on it to say, see, we told you there was spying on the Trump campaign. 
So I guess the question is, did did Bill Barr accidentally put his foot in his mouth or did he deliberately go out and do a solid for the president? So they're grotesquely irresponsible comments and the suggestion that somehow the terms spying and surveillance and investigation and obtaining a warrant and wiretaps are all just used interchangeably and it's all just this colloquial thing. Um, There's Bill no Barr, negative connotation right, like here. Bill Barr did not fall, up, fall off a turnip truck in front of Maine Justice five minutes ago. Uh, there is no way he doesn't understand the distinction between those terms and there's no way that the attorney general, two-time attorney general of the United States, testifying in front of Congress is not being very, very careful when thinking about his words. So essentially what Bill Barr did was sort of accused former U.S. law enforcement or, or intelligence officials of committing a crime, a serious one, because later, whenever he was doing sort of the walk back, he was also saying he was concerned about unauthorized surveillance. Unauthorized surveillance, of course, uh, would be criminal in nature. And then sort of equivocating on it, uh, you know, enough to just sort of dangle the issue in front of Congress. He's, he's using language that is uh, clearly going to drive sort of the conspiracy theory style coverage of it. Uh, you know, and, and even the suggestion that he should be, you know, that this is something he should be looking into. You know, there's already an inspector general's investigation. There's already an investigation in a different U.S. attorney's office into these very matters. And so, you know, the answer, the, the easy answer and the answer that Bill Barr knew uh, he could have and should have given was, uh, of course, it would be very, very concerning if anything like this happened. It's my understanding that there's ongoing investigations. If that investigation unearths anything inappropriate, um, I, of course, will take remedial action and, of course, will return to this committee to update you on it. You know, th- this wasn't this wasn't a hard thing to get right. And so as we lead up to sort of the, the release of the Mueller report tomorrow morning, I do think that we have to ask ourselves um, whether or not Bill Barr is entitled to sort of the presumption of good faith that that a lot of people have offered him. You know, Ben's not here to uh, to defend himself on it, but but Ben has done so sort of explicitly. I've certainly uh, felt that way generally. That um, you know we we shouldn't presume that he's you know playing this game with redactions and he's going to try and hide the Mueller report. That said, after this very very strange summary letter and sort of the second letter that kind of seemed to cut against the the initial summary uh, and now these comments uh, you know it's it's starting to become sort of difficult to to trust that Bill Barr is, is somebody who's acting in good faith here you know I I think that question of whether Bill Barr is acting in good faith applies not only to his treatment of the Mueller investigation in specific, but to his treatment of his own federal agency and the FBI more broadly because I mean, that extract you read from the transcript chain to me reveals Bill Barr acting in a very calculated, very political manner, whereas, Susan, what you think the easy answer, that's the the answer of someone who's the head of an agency protecting the bureaucratic interests of their agency saying – we have rules. We're investigating. If our rules were violated, you know, we'll fix it. But what he was doing instead was, number one, tweaking the left for being trusting of the FBI when they weren't trusting of the FBI in the 1970s and COINTELPRO. Oh, how hypocritical of you guys to be so trusting of them now. 
And at the same time, as as you noted, a stop to the right attacking the FBI for, you know, using this pejorative term. But he's not saying they did something wrong. He's just using a pejorative term that connotes that they might have done something wrong. And so to me, in that one little back and forth, he is doing a lot to undermine public trust in the legal constraints and oversight that were put in place in the wake of the scandals of COINTELPRO in the 1970s to regulate the law enforcement functions of the Justice Department. And that, to me, is a political animal, not somebody who is acting to carry out his duties as attorney general, not somebody who has the best interests of his institution in mind, not somebody who has the rule of law in mind or fairness in mind. It was deeply, deeply political. I I think that point is really important, that these comments actually are comments that harm the the Department of Justice, that harm the FBI, that, uh, that erode public faith and confidence in those institutions. And and I think as contrast, you know, Barr sort of accidentally throwing red meat to sort of Trump's base and, and the Fox News propaganda machine, essentially. It's not just red meat. It's adding a lot of gas to that fire. Well, that he's doing that. And it's so easy not to, right? So, so look at how Chris Ray has handled himself, someone who actually is in sort of a similar position in being the establishment pick kind of appointee that that's coming in after the president has uh, has engaged in a controversial firing. You know, it, it's not as though he's paying this tremendous price for keeping his head down and playing it down the middle and sort of being an institutionalist. And so the idea that Barr feels compelled to sort of reach out and, and take these swipes and, and be so political and be so political at the expense of his own department and his own agency it is disturbing. It is baffling. And it's at a time, by the way, in which faith in those institutions is going to be critical, including among the left. This report is going to come out and not just the president's base is going to have to decide, well, does it exonerate her, him or not? The other side is going to have to accept those findings, too. The other side is going to say, well, if Robert Mueller says that there were, you know, that there is nothing in here, uh, you know, that, that uh, necessitates criminal charges, we're going to believe that the Justice Department acted in good faith, we're going to believe that this report includes all pertinent, relevant information that, that sort of on the eve of knowing that, that this was going to be this massive test of institutional credibility, one that's really quite important to, you know, the uh, the stability of this country in, in long-term ways, that, that he decides that that's the moment to sort of go rogue and accuse people of spying is, it is so irresponsible. And he did something else, too, in the second half of these remarks, which I think is very tough. Uh, He says, I also want to make clear this is not launching an investigation of the FBI. Frankly, to the extent that there were any issues at the FBI, I do not view it as a problem that's endemic endemic to the FBI. I think there was probably a failure among the group of leaders there at the upper echelon. Uh, He goes on to say Chris Ray has been a great partner. Uh, But if it becomes necessary to look over some former officials' activities, I expect that I'll be relying heavily on Chris and work closely with him in looking at that information, which is, you know, his way of essentially saying, well, if anything was wrong, it's Jim Comey's fault. Uh, It's it's Andrew McCabe's fault. It's people who were here before. I suspect he would like to imply that like John Brennan and other people that were in senior positions in the Obama administration are somehow culpable in this too. And what this strikes me is that this is, you know, coming in a sort of more 
measured kind of way perhaps with a little more diplomatic language from a guy who has a lot of credibility still in the eyes of many like Bill Barr is still very much the same narrative that has been politically peddled by the president, by his you know allies in Congress as a way of doing damage to the institutions. And there just has not been any evidence that has been put forward by any of these investigations to suggest that there was some kind of conspiracy here just behind the Trump campaign. And by the way, you know, a federal judge did authorize surveillance connected to this counterintelligence probe. And it just seems like that's all getting left out. So I mean, we're looking at the attorney general here, sort of clouding it a little bit and talking around the issue, but essentially purveying the same narrative that the president and, and Devin Nunes have been putting out. Right. And, and even saying that, even saying, well, there were some bad apples that did this, is itself an indictment of those agencies, right? That this is a place where, you know, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the intelligence community, you can't get away with unauthorized surveillance because you have to rely on people doing things. People at these institutions don't break the law. These are really, really strong, durable institutional cultures. And so to suggest that, well, some small group of leaders could come in and and cause, you know, and, and do all of these terrible things, you know, this idea that you can somehow segment out, you know, the, the people that the president has decided to target as the bad guys and, and criticize them and it not be an indictment indictment of the larger institution, that's just not how it works. He should be saying, uh, you know, if this occurred, it would, of course, be a problem. Uh, I have every confidence, you know, that other individuals wouldn't go along with it. And if if it did occur, we would be able to figure it out. Yeah, I think it also sets up a situation where not only, you know, is the Mueller report going to be published tomorrow into an environment where everybody has already decided what they think of what it's going to say without having read it. But it also sets up a situation where when these internal investigations that address specifically the conspiracy theories articulated by the right, when these internal investigations come up with whatever findings they come up with, those are also going to fall into an environment where everybody's already decided what they believe to be true. And that's what it means to undermine the public trust in an institution of government, to be a neutral arbiter, to act according to a set of transparent rules that are equally applied, to be subject to public accountability and congressional oversight. It it means that no matter what this institution does, it's going to be seen through a political lens. And, you know, obviously that's just one symptom of this broader problem that we have of polarization and everybody living in their own bubbles and operating according to their own facts. But, you know, the idea that Bill Barr having not just indulged in that but really stoked it with this set of comments – might still be seen by some in the Washington establishment or the legal community as an institutionalist or an upholder of the impartial rule of law, to me, is a bit laughable given the, the impact of this behavior. All right. Let's bad move. bar. Ooh. Bad. Bad. <laughs> Very bad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Tammy's going to give it to you. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, let's move on to uh, object lessons. Um, I will go first, actually. Um, so uh, lost in the uh, some of the coverage of the just horrific fire at uh, the cathedral uh, in Paris at Notre Dame this week was a tweet. Well, I don't know if it was completely lost in the coverage. Um, the president had some 
what he thought was helpful advice as firefighters were racing to try and save uh, this entire centuries-old building as the roof was looking like it might even collapse, said that um, perhaps the firefighters in France should consider using water tankers, you know, tankers, planes filled with water. Flying water tankers. Flying water tankers. I didn't know they had those. And they said, must, and he said, must act quickly. He advised them. (laughs) It's good he said that on Twitter where they would be sure to see it right away. Have you guys thought of water yet? (laughs) So I think the president seeing this maybe thought he was thinking those big flying tankers like the kind that we have. Like to fight a forest fire? A forest fire. He uh, didn't suggest raking the cathedral because <laughs> you know no, if that'll you come rake later. them, if you they had don't a, if burn. you had have dusted your dirty cathedral, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> um, but the the French, I don't, I'm not going to say it in French, but essentially the, the the fire brigade, you know, the account that was tweeting all of the updates uh, about what was happening to this and the response uh, that the that the, that the French authorities were giving it, tweeted in French except once when they tweeted in English the following. Hundreds of firemen of the Paris Fire Brigade are doing everything they can to bring the terrible Notre Dame fire under control. All means are being used except for water bombing aircrafts, which, if used, could lead to the collapse of the entire structure of the cathedral. Dot, 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 you dumbass. <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> um, this it is was what the heavily kid, implied. <laughs> this is what the kids call a subtweet. <laughs> Uh, and it being the only one in English of the day uh, was notable. And so it was interesting that there was just that one moment where it was sort of a thanks for the advice, but that's really a bad idea. So shout out to the Paris Fire Brigade and to their social media person. Yeah. Well played. Well played. Well played. I have an object lesson, um, which is thematically tied to our last topic, which is if you would like to know what one James Comey thinks about Bill Barr's comments on spying, um, you can listen to the Lawfare podcast that we put out last Wednesday. Um, I went to California and had interviewed uh, Comey for Hewlett's Verify conference, um, and we had a pretty interesting conversation actually about cybersecurity and uh, and the cybersecurity priorities of the FBI. Um, But at the beginning and at the end, he had some... um, Pretty interesting and um, rather direct words, uh, both for the attorney general and the president. And it's, it was an interesting, uh, fascinating conversation. And so go listen to it. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast, I think, you guys. Oh, Kathleen Turner will not be joining you. <laughs> I, be back hope, next I week. hope that you get to keep that voice even when you've recovered. You think so? Yeah. You think I would, just, I would be better as a Kathleen Turner in the world? <laughs> we need like a like a BMR and a like a post Mueller report era mm-hmm. and an, and a pre Mueller report. Yeah. This podcast will be the dividing line. Then I, then I adopt my yeah. new personality. Antebellum, postbellum. Oh, I like it. Yeah. I met Kathleen Turner once, so I have some experience with her persona. No. Yeah, I did. It was great. And she sounded just like this. <laughs> she was absolutely delightful. <laughs> Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can get Rational Security merch at Lawfare, what is it? Lawfare Merchandise Spot. The Lawfare Store. The Lawfare Store. Nicely, Shane. I'm going to get this straight eventually. Maybe I won't. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can follow us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Julian Assange and the Extraditions. 
what, what like kind a, of music is it? A bebop kind yeah, of band. Like a bebop kind of thing? Like, like, or would it be sort of like a... The Temptations? Yeah, maybe a little bit like little that. little Motown? A little Motown. Okay. Or it'd be more like, you he know... He is so not Motown. Or like Pet Shop Boys. He seems more like a Pet Shop Boys kind of guy. <laughs> you know? Maybe some emo synth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All things that Sophia Yan is not interested in. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittis and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll see you on the other side next week. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 